0: Good evening. You could just stand. Can just sit and watch me as I get plugged in up here. Well, this morning we talked about stewardship, a little bit about stewardship, and uh, we talked about the seven things that we're stewards of. And we gave some quick examples from the scripture. This evening, what I'd like to do is. Um, continue on with that general theme, and as the projector turns on, um, there we go, kind of carry on with the same theme and talk about giving. Um, I mentioned this morning that some of the slides that you saw I'd shared at a conference, and the same goes for this set. Um, And one of the things that we do with Assembly Care is try to communicate uh, about connecting with Christian workers, commended workers. How many of you are familiar with that term, commended workers? Most of you are are familiar. Some people use the term commissioned, commended. It's when a local assembly, basically, the, the term actually means to hand over to the Lord. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean to send someone off to a work. The word itself actually means to hand over to and um, assembly's committed workers to the Lord. Assembly Care tries to advocate and connect with commended workers. We have about 500 of them listed in our directory. If I haven't mentioned this before, you can go online to assemblycare.org, click a link. We have a mapping system for probably about 1,200 New Testament pattern churches in the U.S. and Canada, Um, 60-something camps all throughout the U.S. There's usually one or two like Verdugo Pines in every state uh, and in Canada, 70-something ministries like MS Correspondence School, um, CMML that that, that serve these uh, local churches, and a lot of the workers. And we receive gifts and and, and distribute those to the workers. So one of the things that we do sometimes is give a talk on practical things connected with giving. Um, If there was a homiletics book, this would probably be a shotgun message. There's no such thing. I'm totally making that up, you know. But I'm just going to throw a lot of information at you. Uh, If I had to defend this form tonight, I would say, well, the Lord in Luke 27 took the... D- the disciples, two on the road to Emmaus, through the scriptures had picked out things concerning Himself. Um, if you ever need to defend systematic theology, that's your verse that you can go to. Uh, some preachers talk about expository preaching only. There's a big need for that, but I think the Lord gives us an example also of going through the Scripture and picking themes and things out that cluster around a theme. And so I've done that. I've I've just put a number of topics here under this heading, getting practical about about giving. Turn to Matthew chapter 25 verse 14 tonight and I'm going to just go through as much of this information as I can. Sometimes at a at a conference, one of the two that I've done on this topic, they'll say, "Well, you come speak and speak about tithing and explain that and come speak about financial stewardship and come speak about these kinds of things and so Once again, if you want these slides, just email me and I'd be glad to give them to you. Matter of fact, I think they're up on the Assembly Care site. If you click on library, there's a number of slide sets and you can download them right there. Matthew chapter 25 verse 14 says this. This is one of the parables of the kingdom. And they're parables that are connected with the return of the Lord. Uh, Verse 14 says, for it would be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one. Uh, To each according to his ability. Very interesting little phrase. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went, dug in the ground, Kid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. I'm really reading to get to that phrase. Settling of accounts always goes with stewardship. Settling of accounts. And so we've got this slide here. What have families in your assembly done with the Lord's, and you could fill in the blank, and I'm talking specifically about money. This morning we mentioned time, you're a steward of time, you're a steward of your body, you're a steward of the gospel, you're a steward of people, you're a steward of your gifts. I'm focusing in on just one of those. You know, you could do a message all on stewardship of the gospel, couldn't you? A whole message on stewardship of the lives of people entrusted to you as a Sunday school teacher, as a mother, as a father, as an elder. We're just gonna focus in on money. Stewardship of financial issues here. What have families in your assembly done with the Lord's money? Someone in the assembly and family should be strategically planning what to do with your finances. Otherwise, you might go in two different extreme directions. One is to sort of hoard things out of concern. I mean, there's plenty in the news to scare you when it comes to the financial situation around you, Um, where you just sort of... Batten up the hatches and try to hunker down. Uh, the other thing that can happen is you'll wind up spending on emergencies. You don't have a plan, and then something comes up, and that sort of um, your you're giving or your use of the Lord's money can, can sometimes just focus on emergency things rather than being like a steward that says, "What would the master like? What would the master do? What would the master want?" Let's invest that way. Uh, where did Jesus say, make friends using money? That's kind of an interesting phrase, just to sort of leave it hanging there in English. Um, comes from Gospel of Luke, chapter 16. Turn to Luke, chapter 16. Just a couple, a couple passages here about giving. This is an interesting passage. This is another passage that sort of has to do about thinking strategically Thinking forward about what you do with your finances as a follower of Christ. Luke chapter 16. I'm going to read from verse 1. He also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a, magnet, a manager. I don't know why I said magnet, but he might have had magnets too. Uh, <laughs> There was a rich man who had a manager or a steward and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account, turn in the account of your management or your stewardship, for you can no longer be manager. You can no longer be steward. Translation, you're fired. And the steward said to himself, the manager, what shall I do? Since my master is taking the stewardship away from me, I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I've decided what I'm going to do so that when I am removed from my stewardship, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors, one by one, he said to the first, uh, How much do you owe my master? He said, 100 measures of oil. He said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, How much do you owe? He said, 100 measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill in, write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. I tell you, says the Lord, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth. The authorized had, I think, mammon, and, and there, so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. And there are different interpretations of this verse, what exactly what it means and who's failing here. But the basic idea is that this man realized he was going to lose his stewardship, and so he thought, what can I do with these resources to plan for the future? And he did something pretty sharp. He was going to get fired anyways, and so he basically made friends by the use of his stewardship. And there's this idea of, have I as a believer thought about the future strategically like this man did? And the Lord is saying a lot of times, some people show a lot more wisdom about the future than followers of Christ do. Have I taken the Lord's money and invested it with the future focus? So that when friends fail or when the money fails or when the stewardship fails, however you interpret that, there will have been an investment and, and something waiting for me in the future. Just another verse on, on, on strategically thinking about how we use the Lord's resources. We're gonna give an account, and here's some, some uh, counsel that the Lord gives. Distinguish in your assembly between giving and stewardship. This is just another point on this idea of sort of being strategic. What's giving? Giving is the act of taking what's yours and handing it to somebody else. It can be an act of worship and an act of love, second Corinthians chapter eight verses eight and nine. Stewardship is a little bit different than just giving, right? I could walk up to someone this um, not patting myself on the back, it wasn't a big deal. there were at our assembly, one of the families has um, they're not foster kids they're, they're they're students from other countries that come and they exchange students right and, and these students were from China, and so one of the guys was there and um, Say, hey, do you have a Bible? Well, you can get a Bible for ten bucks, right? And I had an inexpensive, you know, Bible. Like, so, well, oh, here, you know, here's a Bible. I gave him a Bible. It didn't cost me a lot. Um, you know, it's about like this one. That's not necessarily stewardship. it's just an act of giving, right? Stewardship has a lot more to do with thinking uh, with the, the the interests and the desires of the owner in mind. Remember, a steward takes what belongs to someone else and conducts business for someone else with the intentions and the desires of someone else. We need to teach a difference between stewardship and just mere giving. You know, a lot of people can think about just sort of mindless giving. Give, give, just or didn't give. But is there more that we can do in terms of our use of the Lord's finances? Here's what I think you can correct me if I'm wrong. Here's what I think giving looks like to many people, all right? So here we are at the assembly, or here's my family. and Now, I often give, uh, I, I share this in connection with committed workers, and so that's why it says a worker here. You could put something else in there, all right? Maybe a ministry or something. But here you are, and you give to the assembly, or you just sort of give with a worker in mind. What, what, what am I doing? I'm just I'm not harping on the point, but I'm just sort of making this point about strategically thinking, okay? And this will sort of make that point. But I wonder sometimes if rather than just thinking about maybe just, say, giving to a worker, giving to a camp or something like that, if we can actually think about this. What is the Lord trying to accomplish? Do we have a biblical vision based on the Lord's will and the word of God That our assembly or our family—you know—some families just do giving just in their own family. You know, we give on the Lord's day, but we also do this just privately. You know, here's what we know the Lord wants. How can we give to accomplish or to further this end? And once we have this in mind, then we start thinking about maybe a worker or a camp or a ministry that's heading in this direction. You see the difference? You can just sort of—you could just give. But I think this is really getting the line of stewardship. If you're doing this as an assembly, I have put assembly here. An assembly might give to a worker or something like that. The leadership in assembly could think about that. They could say, you know, as, as, as an assembly here, we really would like to see the work in South America further. I'll give you an example. Right now, there are thousands and thousands of people flooding into Europe from the Middle East, right? Does your brain think opportunity, evangelistic opportunity? My hope is that those individuals, whether they should be or shouldn't be or whatever, when they go into Europe, and I'm not really confident about this, that they will not be met by people that are only talking politics, politics, but that they will be met by believers with the gospel and the love of Christ. Would that not be awesome? If I can use the word awesome, they're fleeing from guns and from radicalism in their own countries, and they come into another country and they meet people with the gospel and the love of Christ. People who wouldn't have gotten into their country, but terror and war has sent them out. So here, we could say, okay, as a local assembly, can we be involved in getting the gospel to these hundreds of thousands of people flooding into Europe? Right? Why? Because the Lord loves them, and the Lord wants them to hear about Christ. And with that in mind, we then think about a worker or a ministry that's doing something like this. If you're at a local church level, your elders can communicate that. And say, hey, here's our, here's our desire. No, we want to we reach this neighborhood, or we want to invest in camp. You see, it could be whatever the Lord puts on your heart, Right? You could do this as a family. You could do this as an individual. And I'm just trying to make the difference between just sort of giving faithfully, giving faithfully, praise the Lord, versus maybe stewardship, where we're thinking of investing because we know what the Father, what the Lord's trying to accomplish. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Let's read about the hearts of some believers in giving. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. There is a story that runs through the New Testament. It starts in Acts, probably around Acts chapter 11, uh, with a collection for the poor in Jerusalem. It runs through uh, Galatians and 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians Corinthians 16, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, it comes back in in Romans 16, and it, there's this whole storyline about the poor in Jerusalem and this whole collection project that Paul is involved in. And I remember when I first saw that, I thought this is all over the New Testament. Um, and this kind of comes into that story. Second Corinthians chapter eight, I'm going to read from verse one. Paul is writing to the Corinthian assembly. This is an assembly in the area of Greece today. He says, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction or trial affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. And and there you should stop reading, you should pull the parking brake, emergency brake, ripcord, whatever you have to pull to stop and say, wait a minute, what are you talking about? Their sort of practical generosity flowed out of their poverty, out of their joy. In a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy in their extreme poverty overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. What are you talking about, Paul? Well, verse 3, they gave according to their means, as I testify, but not just that, beyond their means, of their own accord. I didn't make them do this. They begged us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Now, the authorized has the ministry of the saints, I believe, right? That's the word diakonos, to minister, to serve. What is What are we talking about ministering? Basically collecting financial gifts and going to Jerusalem and ministering it, serving it to the really poor Christians in Jerusalem. How do they get poor? We're not sure. 3,000 baby Christians around the day of Pentecost, that can cost you something if you're just sort of trying to support them or maybe these early believers lost their jobs under persecution. We don't know, but somehow... All of these believers in Jerusalem were so poor that it was heavy on the heart of Paul. These Christians heard of it, and they said, you've got to let us get involved in this. But you all don't have anything. Please, Paul, we want to be in on this. Fine. You know, you just do what you can do. And they're going above and beyond. Like, well, you've you got kids. They've got to eat. Don't worry about the kids. They'll be fine. You know, and they're just way above and beyond what they could do. Why? Because they were infected by the joy of the Lord and they wanted to be involved. They begged Paul earnestly for the the chance to take part. Verse 5, in this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. You You could do a lot with that verse. Accordingly, we urge Titus, I mean, in light of this, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, this is the Corinthian assembly. but They, they excelled in, spe- in faith, in speech, in knowledge. I mean, Corinth had great preachers. They had men and women of faith. They were earnest in, in everything. See that you also excel in this act of grace also. You know what was happening? What was happening was The assembly in Corinth had promised and had talked about getting involved in this giving project. And Paul had gone and told other assemblies about their zeal. And other assemblies got excited. And they actually gave. And then the Corinthian assembly didn't give anything. And there, you know, Paul's looking at his watch. He's like, I don't know, we're going to go over there soon. And they don't have anything. And so he sends Titus to, to basically say, listen, let's not set up an embarrassing situation here. We don't want brothers from these other assemblies to come with all of their gift. And they've heard that you guys are just really passionate about this project and you don't have anything collected. And then you sort of have to like scramble and pull something together. He said, that's just going to be embarrassing. So he writes this letter to them and says, you need, you need to get, since Titus, we need to get ready. And talks about uh, the heart things involved with this. And so I brought up the Macedonians, okay, to talk about the fact that They had a real hunger and an interest to be involved in this project. What would be similar for our assembly like that? Is there something that just captivates, or your family, captivates your heart, captivates your interest? Like the Macedonians, they say, listen, I've got to get involved in this. And this is what's interesting. This is what makes the body of Christ rich and diverse. As you see some people saying, there are children that need help. There are people that need the gospel here. There are workers that need this help. There's gospel literature that needs to be printed. Right? I mean, I know somebody who does, uh, he's probably got on 60 different languages of evangelistic literature up in, in Tacoma, Washington. Uh, there are people who are saying, do you have gospel tracts in um, Urdu? They're like, what's Urdu? Is that an herb? That's a language. You know, somebody needs a Bible in this uh, there's so much to do. So find an interest or need. Just again, thinking strategically. Personalize it through awareness and through people. Look at pictures of this need or of that work. Get to know the people that are involved in it. I think there's a big need for local church leadership. You could be a big help by just reminding the families. And I want to bring this up again. Have you picked someone to be involved in? Have you thought about it? If you're somebody who wants to do something like that, like, Adopt a missionary or something. Remind every 27 days, you know, once a month, hey, have you picked your family? Have you, you know, something like that. Remind them. Uh, Adopt the work. The Bible talks about fellowshipping in the gospel. You know what fellowship is? Koinonia. It's joint ownership. It's joint partnership. You have two people involved in a business. That's that's fellowship. They're in it together. Um, There's a difference between that and maybe sort of just mindlessly, and I have to be careful here because if I write a sentence like that, there's a big difference between not giving, giving even though you're not really involved in the work, and then sort of the ultimate being personally involved and giving, right? I think the Lord would rather us give than to like not do anything at all. But anyhow, just a suggestion that, communicate uh, realistically about its needs and affirm the work through reports. Uh, I'm not going to spend a lot more time on that. But just different ideas about how to strategically, practically give the Lord's work. You can adopt a worker. You can adopt a senior worker. We did a survey with Assembly Care and got the ages of workers. I really would have, it would have been neat to put it up here. I think something like 50% of the committed workers from American assemblies are, they're definitely 65 or older. Maybe it's like 70%. A large majority of them are retirement age or older. Maybe 50% are, are 70 or it's just, it's just a really high number. And that's a whole different topic to talk about. Um, what's, what that's going to look like 15 years from now. Uh, you, there's not a large pool of workers that are in their 30s, 40s. But there are workers that are in their 70s and 80s. And, and a lot of assemblies aren't like you guys are. You have Western Assemblies home like right down the street. Uh, But some workers just get forgotten about. Uh, You have a unique situation here. And um, and some of them have needs that, and they're faithful. They've known how to be faithful all their years. They're not going to say anything about it. Uh, But that's why I have adopt a senior worker, adopt a church planner, adopt a camp. Take a look at this here. This is something that I just do to illustrate something that I, I don't know the answer to this, but I think it's a challenge among New Testament Patterns Assemblies in North America. So this is a screenshot from the old assembly map. Uh, we've moved it to a new database, but this is Florida. This is where I was from. And um, these are sort of assemblies around the state. And if you zoom in and you look at, I, I was born in Tampa. Um, these are major sort of cities. I mean, they're not huge cities like L.A. Nothing's major compared to L.A. But uh, they're, they're population centers, you know, with 100,000 people or more, and uh, there are no doubt evangelical churches in these areas, but if somebody was going through and wanted to meet with a New Testament pattern church, New Testament pattern assembly, I mean, they're just not there, and sometimes I've been at conferences where people have talked about church planning and pioneering and Back in the 80s or back in the 60s, there was a real wave of churches that were planted in the Piedmont area of North Carolina. They sort of go through these uh, different historical things and they talk about the need for church planting again. Here's the point. If somebody is going to go, for example, and start a local church or a New Testament pattern assembly, even in like South Tampa or, or Brandon, that person can't go traveling and doing itinerant Bible teaching all throughout the Southeast every weekend. Why not? Because they've got to be down in Brandon, right? Sharing the gospel, meeting people at the park, meeting with families, doing home Bible studies, visiting. They've got to stick there and do the work there. But a lot of assemblies they are giving to Christian workers is based primarily on visitation, visiting speakers. And I think what what may be happening is they're sort of... um, It's not intentional, but some assemblies inadvertently are are sort of encouraging Christian workers to primarily be itinerant Bible teachers. Because um, if there aren't a handful of local churches that say, well, you know, there are two couples in Brandon that are trying to plant a church there. We know about them. We want to see a local church planted here. We're going to try to support them. We don't need them to come preach at our assembly to get a, a gift. We're going to do that, if there's not local assemblies doing that, and I don't know many that are, then you have a real practical challenge for that family. Um, And you might say, well, the Lord will take care of them. Well, the Lord will take care of them. But one of the things that I'm going to suggest to you tonight is that the Lord has communicated that he wants the workers to trust him, but he wants the body of Christ to care for the workers. Uh, it's a point that I'll just make a little bit later. Here's another area. Here's uh, here's Gainesville, the University of Florida. Huge football school here. Now, there's an assembly right there. I think they should sell their building and camp out on the doorstep, 40,000 college students, right? Uh, that's not my choice. But um, they're down the road. There's six or seven churches down this road. Um, and it's you know, 10 or 15 people come to the building there. Um, but if somebody wanted to plant a local church there at some of these different areas, um, how would they do that, right? You see just the idea of strategically thinking about and supporting uh, works with, uh, with, with those kind of things in mind. Um, here's where I take risks with slides, and then some people said, hey, you said good stuff. And we'll invite you back, and I wonder, am I going get, to uh, get in trouble for saying things like this? I think sometimes there's an unintended double standard um, among some assemblies, and that is is that um, I, this might be going away, but there was a willingness, I think, to, to support missionaries that served overseas and stayed in an area, right? Maybe for 15, 20 years, um, just doing shepherding work, church planting work in an area But if somebody came in in, in the United States and wanted to go stay in an area for years and sort of start a local church and try to raise up elders at that local church, I know in the past that there might have been a little bit of an accusation of sort of a a one-man ministry. And um, I thought there's a little bit of a, there might be a little bit of a double standard there for stateside workers and workers overseas. Uh, Because I never heard anybody suggesting that about missionaries that were planting churches. So, these are just some practical things um, that I just have brought up as I've talked with different assemblies around uh, the, the country. There's a need to help the, uh, the, the next generation develop habits of giving. And I've got a little slide here for you. All right. Um, one of the things that we need to do is we need to learn as, as individuals and as teenagers, And as younger people, to give to the Lord first from what we have and to learn to live off of the the rest that we have. That's just something that somebody's got to teach them. Um, If you don't do that, what happens is, is that individuals plan to live off of the full amount that they have, and then there's this real struggle to sort of chop out something for the Lord. And then you wind up giving grudgingly. The scripture talks about the Lord loving a cheerful giver. And the Bible talks about first fruits. That's giving first to the Lord of what we've got, right? And I wonder, as, as local churches, if we're teaching families, I don't know how many of you have kids here, if we're teaching them that, hey, if you've got a check, you start working at the, you know, the burger joint down the street, give to the Lord first, and then find a way to live off of the rest. And I'll give you one suggestion of, of how to do that. Um, And so, just some ideas to practically teach about giving. Here's here's two or three ways to do that, by the way. Um, If you struggle with giving to your local assembly on a regular basis, I won't ask for a raise of hands, but I will raise my hand. I, for years, just found myself sitting at the Lord's Supper and think, man, I forgot to bring my checkbook. You know what that really indicates? That indicated, and this is, I mean, I tuned right into it. It indicated a lack of just general preparation on my part. I was just going through my week, going through my week, going through my week Sunday. And so, you know, that, that didn't just show up or manifest itself in a lack of preparation for giving. It manifested itself in a lack of preparation to worship generally. And so what I did, this is, this is something we did back in Florida, is I basically said, well, I went to my bank's website and I just used the bill pay on our bank's website to cut regular checks to our local church and to some workers. And so that way I knew there was going to be no more forgetting. Uh, and so somebody called me recently from New Jersey. And he said, hey, can, can you talk to us about collecting, uh, allowing believers in our assembly to give through credit cards online? I mean, do you know any assemblies that are doing that? And this is one of the things that I'll suggest them. You don't have to set anything up as a local church. Most of you have, most of your banks have. You know, have you seen that? Any of you use just generally use Bill Pay? Uh, it's something on your bank's page, and your bank will oftentimes, sometimes they'll charge you a dollar or two. Some of them will do it at no cost. They'll just send out a check for you to your plumber, your uh, your electric company, and you could go in there and put in your assembly, or you can put in a ministry, or a camp, or an individual. Your, the computer doesn't care. It's just going to print it out, mail it, and deduct it. Um, and and you can do that. You can usually set up a certain number or all year or the first of the month. And so that's something you could do. The top one is a suggestion that somebody else gave I me. Mean, he said, "Hey, cut 12 checks at the beginning of the year, write them out, have them ready to go, um, and and just sort of take one monthly." And um, and the, the third one is. There's just a lot of technology that you can use for that. But there, there are practical things that, that, that we can do. Um, here is one suggestion to kind of help you think about the, the idea of living by faith. And I'm going to kind of go into some other things related to Christian workers. Do you remember the Levites in the Old Testament? I know everybody at Claremont knows a lot about the Levites. And Randy Ames is going to come talk about the tabernacle. Um, the Levites were not given an inheritance in the land, right? They lived in cities scattered throughout the, the various tribes. And the Lord said that they weren't to have an inheritance, and he was going to be their inheritance, and the other, the, the other tribes were going to provide for them. And I'll read here, if 11 tribes gave one-tenth the, the Levites would basically live at an average level of what the other tribes had, right? If you think about that, all the tribes gave one-tenth, and you sort of averaged all that out. The Levites would have wound up with about an average amount of what the other tribes had. They wouldn't have been poor in comparison to the rest of the tribes, and they wouldn't have been wealthy compared to the rest of the tribes. Proverbs chapter 30, verse 8, has an interesting phrase. Turn to Proverbs chapter 30. I'm going to read from verse 7. Two things I ask of you. Deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. And then he says this. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. Lest I be full and deny you. Lest I be rich and deny you and say, who's the Lord? Or, comes to poverty, lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of God. That's an interesting verse of a value just in practical wisdom of, of having what we need. This is what Ecclesiastes is about. Not thinking that everything is, you know, there's some wonderful life for me based in just getting a lot more. Being satisfied with what we have. Uh, the Bible doesn't hide the fact that poverty is hard and that wealth is a strong tower for those that have it. But here the writer has an interesting point and it kind of fits in with what the, the, the Levites would have experienced. They would have had an average of what the other tribes would have had. What does that have to do with everybody living by faith? If the believer lives by faith, a lot of times you'll hear people talk to workers, you know, if you're going to talk about commendation, you know, you'll talk with your elders and they'll talk about living by faith and they will always mention brother so you guys know, George Mueller and tell his story and talk about living by faith. Um, But we don't often talk about believers living by faith in terms of their use of their funds. And I think the scripture really calls all of us to live by faith, right? If a a worker lives by faith, that means that they take the risk of leaving their financial situation with the Lord, if they choose to do that. Although we have the apostle Paul working as well as receiving gifts from other Christians, so it's a little more complicated than this. If the individual believer who's not necessarily committed to the Lord's worker, if they live by faith, what does that look like? That means that they may take the risk of giving more to God and trusting the Lord with their future. I mean, people on both sides take a risk for God. The workers are taking a risk, so to speak, and they're trusting the Lord. And the individual family that's giving said, well, we can't do like the Macedonians and give beyond our means. That, would, that, might, that might hurt. Well, if you think the Lord is putting something on your heart to do, you're kind of doing something that's similar to what the worker does. And um, there's just a couple thoughts about living by faith, all of the Lord's people giving to the Lord's work, and the Lord uh, sort of averaging out the needs of, of the workers and, and different ministries. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, if you're kind of wondering, where, where, where is this guy at? He's just sort of all over the place. I shared a number of verses that talked about Giving strategically and thinking strategically. And these are some verses that have to do with actually giving to the Lord's workers individually. And that was one of them. Here's another point. 1 Corinthians chapter 9 is a chapter that speaks about the rights of a Christian worker. If you ever want to do a study on giving to missionaries and what's our responsibility and what's their responsibility. If you think the Lord's calling you to sort of a unique work or to sort of a full-time work as some people say. You'll want to read 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Paul says in verse 1, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you. You are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. There was some accusation that you know, maybe Paul wasn't as legitimate as he claimed to be. He says, do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? It's an interesting little verse. You get these little little snippet of, I don't know, um, historical viewpoints into the lives of some of the apostles. Um, Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? The answer for that would be, well, nobody does. Do I say these things on, a human, on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Now, is it for oxen that God is really concerned? No, he's, he's saying it's for us. Verse 10, does, not, um, does he not certainly speak for our sake? it was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope, and the thresher thresh in hope of uh, sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, Paul came, taught, preached, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do we not have it even more? Now, the apostle Paul didn't make use of this, but he's saying, listen, just because I don't make use of this doesn't mean that I'm not a legitimate apostle. We have this right as well. We're apostles. We could do this. By saying these things, he seems to raise a pattern that we have in the epistles here that those that go into the Lord's work have a certain right, and this is interesting because we talk about America, and we, we emphasize our rights, and as Christians, we don't necessarily have rights. We're following the Lord. The apostle Paul here says well, these rights, rights, rights. It's very interesting to kind of I've preached things like that, and then reading Paul, and Paul, Paul talks about the rights of a worker. We have not made use of this right, verse number 12, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Oh, that's why he wasn't making use of this right. Some kind of obstacle would have been thrown up had he done it. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? Those who serve at the altar in the sacrifice, uh, in the sacrificial offerings, in the same way the Lord commanded that those who preach the gospel or proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. That's pretty clear. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to security in such position. I'm not trying to write this to get you to give something to me, Paul. Paul says, I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of the ground for boasting. So what's going on here? Paul is explaining to the Corinthian assembly why he doesn't make use of the rights that other workers had so that they shouldn't doubt the legitimacy of his apostleship because he wasn't doing it. You might have a hard time identifying with that. It's probably because we've grown up among Christian workers or we've been taught about them and we would probably appreciate a worker who maybe took care of their own financial needs. We wouldn't say, well, they're not legitimate. They're not taking any money from us. But somehow to this group of people, that really stumbled them. And he had to write and deal with it. So why did Paul not make use of this? He says, if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. He's like, I wouldn't be able to say, hey, look at me, I preach the gospel. For necessity is laid on me. Woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I'm still entrusted with the stewardship. Remember what happened to Paul? Paul didn't say, you know what? I think I'm gonna go into the Lord's work. Right, He didn't grow up in a Christian home and say, you know, I think I've been a, you know, a leather worker long enough. I'm going to really just go give it all out for Christ. That's not what happened to Paul. What happened to Paul? The Lord got him. He just said, you are mine. You're going to be a vessel. You're going to work for me. Paul's like, I didn't, me preaching the gospel, that was the Lord you know, got me and, and, and he says, you're a steward, you're a servant, you're a slave for me. You're going to do this. He says, if I preach the gospel, that's just... there's nothing that I could sort of boast, figuratively speaking, in that. So so what can I do to go above and beyond the call of duty to use an American idiom? Verse 17, for if I do this of my own will, I have reward, but if not of my own will, which Paul wasn't preaching of his own will, the Lord took him and used him, then I'm obviously a steward. What then is my reward, verse 18, that in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, then I might win more of them. Isn't that interesting? Do you get what happened there? There are different reasons why Christian workers, uh, we are going to stop here, but why Christian workers may not use their rights to receive from the Lord's work. If you commend a worker to the, to the Lord, this is something that you would walk them through and allow them to make a decision about. Don't say, "Well, if you have work, you have to stop it." That's not biblical. When we were commended, one of the the, the leaders in our assembly was sort of sort of like, "Well, you need to, you're going to quit working at Assembly Care, right?" It's like, "Well, oh, the Lord's opened this up. He's, you know, called us into this. It just doesn't make sense to do that." Um, and this is an interesting passage to look at. Sometimes when you, workers go and share the gospel in certain places. Paul, we know, when he worked with the Thessalonians, wanted to demonstrate before them what it was like to work hard. Apparently, they didn't know what it was like to do a hard, day, hard day's work, and he wanted to demonstrate that. In some places, receiving gifts might stumble people. There could be a lot of reasons why a worker does or doesn't do this, and that's just sort of one point that I make when I talk about commended workers, Christian workers, giving to them and receiving from them. Um, Let's close with this verse, Matthew chapter uh, 6, verse 19. Is there a link between revival and, and giving? Um, there's a lot more. There's, that's slide 20. There's 47 slides, so you'll have to download the rest of it. Um, is there a link between revival and giving? Um, Matthew chapter 5, or Matthew chapter 6, I'll just put this up here, Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. We mentioned this morning you go think about this how many of you have heard about different people praying about revival among assemblies you all were involved in the 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 prayer meetings that went on this year matthew chapter 6 verse 19 says this do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I've never heard anybody talk about a link between giving and revival, but there's a huge link between giving and the heart, and there's a huge link between revival and the heart, and I wonder and this may not apply because I don't know anything about you individually and your, your, your connection with this. I know I've been asked to speak about giving at different assemblies and so I'm just kind of doing this here as well. Revival has a lot to do with our heart for the Lord and his work. And our giving to the Lord is something that really just exposes where our heart is at. And so I wonder sometimes if when we talk about a reviving of my own personal life, if one of the secrets to that has a lot to do with giving. Because in giving, you commit to the Lord. And you notice I haven't said give anything to me. Uh, I, I, can, I can tell you a lot of individuals that need help. Uh, works, ministries, camps, senior care homes, all kinds of things. I mean, Western Assembly Home, Verdugo Pines. We have plenty right here that needs support. Um, when we give to the Lord, we really commit to the Lord in a way that's far different than just saying about Um, being involved and and even praying about it. Uh, And so maybe as you go throughout your week, think about if you're strategically investing as a steward. Think about if you have an awareness of the master's heart. Think about if you're giving by faith and working by faith. And think about if there's a link between revival in your own life and giving, where your heart is and what your giving exposes, uh, if we were to look about your heart. Let's pray. Father, this evening, um, Lord, we ask that you would really give us wisdom in this area. Lord, you know, and I know, and probably everybody here knows that most of the believers here aren't financially wealthy. They're probably struggling to figure out how to make ends meet. Lord, we need wisdom to know how to give in a wise way. Lord, this assembly has financial needs. Or you think of ministries like Verdugo Pines and Western Assemblies Home that have needs. And um, we think about the connection between the heart and giving. Lord, I just ask that you would have, uh, that, that your hand would be upon assemblies in Southern California. In this area lord if there's something that we're not doing that we should be doing would you prick our conscience and would you open our eyes to that lord if there was if there's a special ministry or work that you'd have this assembly or maybe a family in this assembly be involved in lord would you put that on their heart in the next week lord when your son returns we want to be able to eagerly show him what we've done how we've invested, what we've earned for him as an expression of our loyalty and good service to him. Lord, help us to do that before we run out of time. What I do even as I'm praying, pray for the hundreds of thousands of Muslims and Middle Easterners flocking into Europe. Lord, dying, out at sea trying to leave their homelands. Lord, I ask that you would open up a wave of evangelism and of gospel um, preaching or, or, or literature or whatever's needed to get the gospel to these people. Lord, we pray for the salvation of men who are involved in terrorism. Lord, these men are in darkness. They're deceived. They need the gospel like anyone else. Lord, you can do this We pray for the light of the gospel in the Middle East. We thank you for the thousands that are coming to Christ. And we ask that you would bring thousands more. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.